This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. If you're uh, into an hour of science, that's what we're going to give you now. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? Good. Good to have you in. Good to be here. We're going to be talking climate, no doubt, if you're here. We're talking a lot of atmosphere today, I think. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. We've got Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. And uh, a, uh, an old flame that uh, hasn't <laughs> been in in a while because he, uh, he quit. Um, but Dr. Jeff, a.k.a. Dr. Cromo, is back. How are you, buddy? Yeah, good, good. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's good to be temporarily out of the Shire and, uh, and, uh, and in Mordor at the moment. <laughs> the Shire of Geelong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good to see you, and uh, it's great to... Um, well, we're gonna, we'll probably hear a little bit about what you've been up to a bit later in the show, but uh, why don't we start off with some news? Do you remember how to do that? Yes. Yeah, I basically panic at the last minute uh, and, and look up <laughs> science news about 10 minutes before the program, but I did actually do something last night. Cool. Um, and it actually does relate to my own uh, to my own field of work, so it's kind of come full circle. Um, uh, people may know that uh, this week was the 40th anniversary of somebody's birth. Uh, Louise, not, uh, not Louise the musical? Louise Brown. Right? Okay. Oh, Louise okay. Brown. Um, <laughs> the first test tube baby. Oh, right. Um, 40 years ago. So, um, hmm. And the interesting thing about... Um, the interesting thing about test tube babies is that there's been controversy whether they, are, they end up as ar- normal, average human beings or whether they have a hmm. slight health issues i think the jury's still out there there are people still studying them but on on, in general they're not an unhealthy population so i don't think i've even heard the term test tube baby in years maybe it's of my era yeah no i was just curious so yeah in vitro fertilization so today we say ivf but they were test tube babies i always thought they used a petri dish but um (laughs) so the the, the, exactly so the sounds worse though petri dish baby yes Yeah. yeah Yeah. But this relates to the, what happens from the father's <coughs> side. The, uh, a really quite well-written article from smithsonian.com is... Uh, .com. I should be very careful. Dads pass on more than the genetics in their sperm. And it's... What's really fascinating is it tells you a bit about the, the, our reproductive bits. Hmm. You know the, how much uh, the intestine is probably about seven to eight metres long? Yeah. Well, so is the male reproductive tract. Can you believe that? that? Seven to eight meters long. That's the epididymis. So, hmm. what happens? Sperm is produced in the testes, gets shunted into the epididymis where it matures, six meters of that, and then passes up over the bladder uh, via the vast difference in the urethra. Another 50 centimeters it has to travel. But the amazing thing so, in IVF, if your sperm can't swim and it's not produced, then you have to, the, the most drastic thing you have to do to a male is to inject his testes and pull that sperm out. Hmm. Now, you think, well, that's fine, sperm, Ouch. you know, inject it. But the thing is that what this paper is, the, the, the two papers in developmental cells, same last author, not, too, not pretty good, um, top of the range of journals, have shown uh, really the, the, the culmination of a whole set of research that finds that your sperm, when it's produced from the testes, is not packing the full punch. Because it hasn't gone through the 10 metres. It hasn't trick. gone through that 10 metres and that 10 metres. <clears throat> it's basically, <throat> it, 
one, it's swimming, actually not swimming, because it learns to swim up right. here, and yeah. then it takes on an extra cargo. It takes on these this kind of payload that's, dr that's basically a sperm opens up its door, its cargo hold, and all these small RNA, these RNA molecules, RNA yeah. we know in the, for the last 10 years doesn't just produce protein, it does stuff all by itself. Hmm. And it takes on RNA. And one of these two papers proved through, through uh, labeling of, it, this is in mice, by the way, not humans, of the RNA, that what happens is genetic material, epigenetic material, can pass from the body into the sperm. Mm. Now, this apparently was taboo. This never happened. It's called the Wiseman barrier. Mm. But now we know from animal studies that you can have a payload dropped off from the cells that line the epididymis into the sperm. So this paper showed that this does happen. So they say potentially, and we know from other experiments like the, the, the work of people like Tony Hannon in Melbourne, that an experience, that uh, environment that a, that a male mouse is subject to could be passed on through mm. to the next generation, <clears throat> potentially through epigenetics. The smoking gun is that these small molecules can pass through. This paper was offering this mechanism. It does get dropped off into the sperm. Wow. Secondly, they showed that although the sperm from the bottom uh, at the testes can actually can fertilize an egg then the sperm compared to the that sperm compared to the mature sperm um, really can't res doesn't result in any implantation at all so mm. it's defective yeah and so there's they've shown that really we need this six to seven meters of um Need a of challenge. epididymis. We wow. need this. It's, the sperm is, you know, has these payloads. It's naive when it comes out, can't swim, becomes an adult in a way when it comes out the other, the end of the mm. seven meters. Mm. And during that seven meters, it's taking on this payload, so which is the, necessary for, for development of the next yeah. generation. No, the real question then is just what sort of impact does that have on a IVF yeah. baby? You know, and yeah. I guess that's the harder part to determine. It is, and they say that that they're going to with this animal model that they're mm. going to. They're going to see, just check the health of these pups right through the next generation and see what their reproductive cycle is. They just have to collect the sperm from the other end. Yeah, because what's the percentage of IVF babies that where the, the sperm is provided in that way? And mm, from a donor. It, yeah, yeah, from a donor in that kind of extraction well, actually, method as opposed not, to the regular it's method. It's not just from a donor, it's from the, from the man, it's from the, the, the partner themselves. It's called um, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, or ICSI. Mm -hmm. And that sperm is actually literally injected into the egg. And even the act, act, of, the act of puncturing the, the outer, yeah, right. the, the zona pellucida, the, outs, the outside of the egg, um, people think that actually perturbs the, either, uh, the development. The process. And, yeah. and mouse studies and rat studies have really shown how the, all these individual steps can change uh the embryo but it's mm. amazing to the the plasticity of mammals mm. to show that you can punch them and kick them and inject things into them and they still end up they're still coming yeah, out the other end works. generally okay well watch your space dr linden what do you got for us <laughs> some good news i got that nothing, sounds really <laughs> nothing like that i'm sorry dr. Shane. <laughs> uh, so uh you might have seen there's been a lot of talk this week about the role of climate change in the heat waves that have been happening across europe at the moment there's mm. devastating heat waves that are happening in many many countries right now um 
And, and connecting heat waves and climate change, we'll hear a little bit more about it later on in the show today. That's kind of quite a, an easy process. There's been a lot of studies that have shown clearly that climate change is affecting the intensity and the frequency of heat waves. But other kind of extreme events, particularly tropical cyclones, are harder to examine when it comes to climate change. It's harder to figure out what climate change is going to do to tropical cyclones hmm. because we don't have a really long record of how, how long uh, they last. We've only got about 30 or 40 years of quality yeah. records. And I remember Dr. Ailey taught me once that, or it might have been you, I think it was Dr. Ailey, taught me that ocean temperatures going up is a driver for cyclones. That's right. But high level wind shear going up as well mm-hmm. destroys them. Exactly. And so the question is what wins out? Exactly. Yeah, and not, knowing, not knowing those two, you know, I, I'd only ever heard the first parameter. Mm. So then when you hear about these high level winds, and that sort of prevents cyclones from forming. It's like, well, okay, which one's going to have a dominant effect? Maybe that's we'll right. get no cyclones yeah, at all. that's it. So yeah. there's all these different ingredients, mm. which makes it really hard. And also, cyclones, tropical cyclones, don't actually happen that often. So mm. the statistics around analysing changes is, is kind of really tricky. Right. But a new study has come out this week from the University of Melbourne, Shamila Sir and Kevin Walsh at the University of Melbourne, that has managed to connect uh, changes that we're seeing in the formation of tropical cyclones and a basic thermodynamic property of the atmosphere that we know is linked to climate change okay so this study and a couple of others as well have found that tropical cyclones are occurring less often close to the equator and more often further away so we've got a decrease in the number of cyclones happening within you know 15 20 degrees north or south particularly in the pacific which has impacts for australia um, and more often a little bit closer to the poles okay Mm. And one of the reasons they think this might be happening is because the tropical atmosphere is becoming a bit more stable. So what happens is, just bear with me, follow me if you can, or go and get a coffee if this is going to be a bit complicated, (laughs) but you get, uh, if you've got more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, then you get more heat, more energy, the the gases trap more heat. And if you've got warmer air, then that air can hold more moisture. Okay, Mm -hmm. so at the equator or in the tropical regions, when the sun hits the earth and the air, the air warms and it rises and the moisture in that air condenses, forms clouds and then falls as rain. You've got more moisture in the atmosphere. So what we actually see is you get more rain. We've got an increase in rainfall across the tropics and that's quite a strong climate change signal. But if you've got more moisture converting from a gas to a liquid... It releases a bit of energy when it does that. It mm-hmm. releases a bit of latent heat. So we're getting an increase in latent heat in the middle of the atmosphere. So the difference in temperature between the bottom of the atmosphere and the middle and the top of the atmosphere is actually decreasing. Right. And that is another ingredient the tropical cyclones mm. require to form. They need this difference in temperature, in temperature. Yep. between the bottom and the top. And if you get a decrease in that, then it kind of suppresses the ability of thunderstorms to form and build and build and build and build until they grow into a tropical mm. cyclone. So this, again, I know it kind of sounds a bit technical and incremental, but this study is, is really valuable in connecting this basic process with these really devastating events that can just have massive impacts in communities you know, all across the world. So, so you mentioned that we're also getting more closer to the poles. So does that mean we're getting less rainfall as you get away from the equator and as a result that 
difference in temperature from various levels is going up? Well, yeah, that's a that's a tricky question because the other component of this study is that the tropical regions are, as you say, expanding. We have this mm. idea, so your air rises at the equator and then it goes out and it cools and sort of sinks at about 30 degrees north and south. That's where we have our subtropical area. We've got a lot of our deserts and mm. those areas are, you're right, moving further polewards as well. That's why we see a decrease in rainfall in Perth, for example, yep. um, Cape Town, as we saw, you know, those guys are, the, mm. it's getting drier and drier there. And that, um, you know, that kind of signal is very similar to what you would expect in a warmer world. So, yeah, we are seeing that and uh, how that interacts is, is really quite a complicated, yeah. complicated feature. So, Jeez, interesting. It is, it is interesting. It's good stuff. Mm. Good stuff to, I mean, it's good that we're starting to get a handle on some of it. Yeah, I mean, connecting these, yeah, these connecting things, these complicated things with things on a weather map that people can go, oh, yeah, I get what that is. Hmm. Does this mean that there's more and more evidence, therefore more and more people will sit up and take notice? Or... Is that a naive statement? <laughs> it sounds like we understand a lot more and the computation is getting better and better. Yeah, I think, well, this, this study is actually interesting. It's only looking at observations uh, because the, the technical components and how the atmosphere behaves is actually not well modelled in the current set of climate models they use to look at the future. Uh, so people who are looking for an excuse not to listen could easily say, ah, there's still a lot of uncertainty about this stuff. Nobody knows. Let's sit back and do nothing. Uh, but I, I, I'm not sure. At this stage of the game... Mm. I don't know. Mm. It's I'm tough. not sure how much yelling is required. <laughs> maybe a tropical cyclone <laughs> in know, off the coast of Sydney or well, Canberra's a little maybe inland, but, <laughs> yeah, but Sydney copying it might, you know, Kirribilli House, you know, mm. at the eye might um anyway. I'm not 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 sure. Not liberty to say. Yeah, yeah. Not liberty to say. I love <laughs> it. Doctor Ray, what have you got for us? Uh Doctor Shane, I, I actually have a um an issue about climate change as well. Oh. More um, weather. More Ray. weather. Uh, and er, I feel like Dr. Ailey would correct me right now and say, no, you're, are you talking about weather or climate? Anyway, Sorry, Dr. Um, so uh, <laughs> this is an interesting one. So uh, why this grabbed me is, is, is years ago I was, I was in an airport talking to someone and I mentioned I was an engineer. And for some reason, climate change came up. And the person said to me, you know, I, I know why climate change is wrong. And I kind of buckled in and went, well, I'd, I'd love to hear that. And, and they said, well, you know, um, they're seeing more icebergs in the Southern Ocean. So clearly that must mean it's cooler. And I kind of went, actually, no, those icebergs come from somewhere and there's more of them breaking, breaking off. off. <laughs> so, but, but it also gets to something, whenever there's, people see a result in weather that seems counterintuitive to the idea of the world getting warmer, they say, oh, well, that, there are some skeptics that often say, mm. well, that, that means mm. that it doesn't, maybe climate change isn't happening. Of course, it's climate change doesn't mean it's going to get hotter everywhere. And this is around Siberian winters over the last decade have been becoming colder and more severe. Yet mm. the, um, Arctic, we're seeing dramatic warming of the Arctic and the melting of the polar ice caps much more frequently and to a larger mm. extent. And so how do you rationalize this? And, um, and, and through most, uh, some observations and a lot of modeling, they actually connected it to that it's actually because the sea ice is melting. And so in the, and I had to write it mm. down, the Barents Kara Sea is the, the, the region where they think that's really the issue is the sea ice melts there. Uh, and this is coupled with affecting, so the, the, the atmosphere has several layers in it. And Dr. Linden will correct me when I say anything wrong. The troposphere is the, the one closer to us. And it's kind of cool as you go up in temperature, as you go up in altitude, it gets colder. 
And then you have the stratosphere above that. Now, what's wild about the stratosphere is as you go up in elevation, it gets hotter because it's actually mm. blocking UV radiation from the sun. And so you have this weird temperature inversion between the troposphere and the and the stratosphere. And anyway, what they actually did through most some observations and mostly modeling is what they showed is that we already know that there's this weird weakening and shift in the polar vortex in the stratosphere, which is one of the recirculation patterns around the the, pole, uh, the the Arctic region. But what they also noticed was there's this weird connection now of a downward transport from the stratosphere to the troposphere. Well, when this connects to the fact that we lose sea ice, and when you don't have sea ice, that affects the weather patterns in the troposphere, coupled with this higher weather recirculation, when all of that tries to go over the Urals, you end up with a colder Siberian winter. Hmm. And That's... It's, yeah, that's fascinating and, and, and it's really, really interesting how they did the modeling because they said, okay, well, if we don't think the stratosphere is important in causing this colder winter, let's take the stratosphere out of the model and see what happens. And you actually need this exchange between the stratosphere and the troposphere to actually show that mm. you're, you're, you're seeing this colder winter. It's mm. a much much nicer winter without that So the, the troposphere is sort of the bottom 10 kilometres of the atmosphere where we get most of our weather. Mm-hmm. And then the stratosphere is where you've got the ozone sort of layer, yeah. essentially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the one component, I, I believe, I haven't studied it extensively, but one component of the stratospheric tropospheric interaction is that ozone in the stratosphere, good for us, right? Protects yep. us. Ozone in the troposphere, Bad when those things interact... Yeah bad for us because ozone's a really nasty greenhouse gas and poison and it it's Mm. um that interaction is yeah is kind of can be messy okay that's why there was such a significance about the two things mixing Mm. because it's Mm. not such a great thing well and it's they're they're separate kind of beasts in a way um Uh, but 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 it gets at the hey you know what you you can't because the other argument about Siberian winter is it's seasonal. It's just some seasonal thing we don't know about, mm. and we're just missing because it's a, yeah. a trend. But what we're actually seeing is there's a, mm. a much stronger argument to say, hey, it's actually the local sea ice change is mm. driving that because of how the weather patterns shift. Another um, pattern like that would be that we're seeing uh, some increases in frosts apart in parts of southeastern Australia. Thinking about people saying, oh, it's colder, therefore climate change can't be real but as i was mm. talking about before you get these drier conditions that can be linked to changes in big atmospheric circulation you get uh, clear days so warmer days dry days but then really cold nights and some studies from anu have found that there's been an increase in frost but that is also oh, wow. a bit linked yeah. to climate change so is that a funny thing people forget i think sometimes in winter that clear sky means freezing cold nights mm-hmm. because there's no nice blanket keeping us warm exactly clouds mm-hmm. well folks uh, if you're not depressed already uh, we're actually not going to help you get any further into that because uh, we've got a couple of great guests coming on in just a minute we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back you're listening to three triple r You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jackie Donahue. She is a research fellow at the Royal Women's Hospital in the University of Melbourne. Jackie, welcome to the studio of RRR. Thank you very much. Now, we've got you in because I think it was Friday there was a big announcement about some of the the Medical Research Future Fund uh, under Greg Hunt being allocated to endometriosis. Yes. So we wanted to, well, first of all, I want to talk a bit about what this condition is and how many people it affects. So can you give us that sort of rundown? Because Ray, Dr. Ray can't even say it, and I suspect a lot, can you say it? Couldn't say it. Couldn't, Couldn't say, say what? 
Endometriosis. Endometriosis. Hey, you getting there? Yeah. Oh, he's got um, it. He's got Practice. it. Um, he's been practicing since the, <laughs> the break. But um, it's one of those areas uh, where I suspect a lot of people just are not aware of just how bad this problem is and how many people it affects. So, first of all, give us a rundown of what it is. What, what's the condition itself? It's a condition that affects around 10% of the female population. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a significant number of women. Yeah. Um, in Australia, I think we're around 700,000 females. Um, and basically what it is, we'll go back to basic biology in the uterus, which is where all the babies born uh, grow. We have an endometrial lining, which is shed every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and that starts in a girl as young as, say, 10 to 12 when you start your periods. So in endometriosis, for some reason that we still don't understand, some of these fragments of tissue end up inside the pelvic region or in the abdominal region of the person, Mm -hmm. and they attach and they grow. And because they're hormonally responsive, every time a girl goes through that cycle every month, these little growths grow, they bleed, um, and then your body comes in and has to repair because it's a wound. And so all that bleeding and repairing over time leads to scar tissue formation and Mm. adhesions. So uh, women who struggle with this from early teenage years right through to, say, their early 20s before they get diagnosed, because it can take up to 10 years for a girl to actually decide or or know to actually go and get this investigated, Um, and that's simply because of a lack of awareness. Um, by that stage, she'll have uh, her bladder might be attached to her uterus or her bowel. Wow. Um, yeah. And then surgeons not only have to try and remove these growths, they also have to try and disconnect all these organs. And altogether, this causes immense pain. Mm-hmm. So women and young girls um, spend a lot of their time in chronic pain um, because of the condition. So, so when, when you say... 10 years in in what stage of that 10 years do you become sort of symptomatic with some sort of issues i mean how, how long of that period do you just not know this is going on you know it's going on because you are suffering from symptoms right straight away straight away wow. so we're not exactly sure how soon a girl will start experiencing the symptoms but say within a year or two years of your men, of your period starting so by say the age of 15 you know you're in chronic pain you'll know you're missing out on school mm-hmm. um you know that you're experiencing more pain than your friends your girlfriends are and your lack of knowledge or your mother's lack of knowledge or your gp's lack of knowledge you're not getting that referral to the gynecologist Mm. to have it um, explored further and that's where you need to go is the pain throughout the month or is it something that because i can imagine where you know it's it's interesting you you and i were talking in the green room about an ovarian cancer survivor we had Mm. on just uh, the other week and and how the symptoms for ovarian cancer are very similar to the sort of symptoms of a woman with it get every month. Yes. Um, and I can imagine the same thing here, where if it was during that that time, it would be easily missed. It gets. It, it can be masked by the fact, yes, mm. you're having your period, so pain is expected during that process, but normal pain would only be one or two days long, right. whereas a woman who has endometriosis will be in pain more um, mm. Some in the severe cases is every day. Hmm. So this uh, exciting new announcement. What are the what are the main goals that you're looking for here? Is it to to help raise awareness or to develop some kind of early detection? How is this detected currently? 
Um, well, the National Action Plan is uh, a three-phase approach. So the first approach is to raise awareness. So everyone at the moment is probably hearing a lot of endometriosis on the radio and the, on the news. Um, and that's also to raise awareness to um, girls to get the appropriate care that they need. Diagnosis at the moment is through um, ultrasound, but it's not confirmed until you have a laparoscope. So you have to have surgery to be absolutely confirmed at this stage. So the second pronged approach for the National Action Plan is to develop a um, clinical aspect, which is a, a <coughs> network across Australia, um, where every woman, no matter where she lives, will have access to the most um, preferred treatment regime that the whole country adheres to. Um, and the third phase is obviously research, which is where I'm based, trying to understand the cause of the disease, can we stop the progression of the disease, and is there a way of treating it other than surgery? Because this is one of the things mm. the patients have asked mm. for. We want something that's not surgically based, if it can be helped. So surgery is, is the only way to deal with endometriosis. Even if you were to catch it really early, it's still the only way currently to deal at, with it. At this stage, wow. yes, yes. So there's no medications that can halt it or...? We can halt it if we stop the cycle, Right. the, the menstrual cycle. So basically young women in their early 20s are opting for early menopause, mm, wow. which, which it, it's ruining your ability to have children, obviously, mm. and it is the leading cause of infertility. So this idea of a national clinical trials network, it sounds big. It, yes. it's, it's, is it basically saying that, that if you diagnose with this condition, you have the right to shop around for the best clinical trial for you? Yes. Yes. It's yes. And it's making um, a national approach means that there is access for everybody and that it's um, a standard, so it's a uniformed approach across mm. the board. Jackie, one of the things I don't understand here is around the diagnosis element. And this is a question I asked our ovarian cancer guests, the same thing. You, you mentioned that um, ultrasound is yes. used initially. Uh, to me, ultrasound is sort of almost at the point of fax machines. This is old world technology, which is getting better, but, but it's everywhere. I can buy one for a thousand bucks online. How is it that this isn't a just a routine test like you would get a yearly sort of dental checkup um, for, for, for young women? It seems to me as though you're not talking about giving them MRIs, which no. are, I get are expensive and prohibitive and we don't have many. Ultrasounds are worth nothing. Why, why is that not part of the sort of scheduling of, of standard testing we do just to keep everyone healthy? I'd say it's not standard at the moment because um, girls aren't being referred to the gynaecologists who mm. specialise in ultrasonography. So um, you can, if, if you know that that's what you want to look for, you go to the specialist to do that. Mm. So that's what this awareness is all about, is to make sure that if you, if a GP or an emergency doctor, an emergency department has a young woman coming in with crippling pain, yep. Yep. you've ruled out appendicitis and something wrong with her bowel and every other thing that can cause pain, on that list has to be endometriosis. Mm. And it's not just, is she currently having a period? It has to be, are you experiencing this pain all the time in this area? Mm. Mm. and explore that further. So yeah. we need to educate these clinicians yeah. as well. I, I suppose it seems to me, I think of things like, you know, you see these little skin check 
places and that you can go to yes. do body scans and so forth these days and they're not they're not dermatologists you know they're no. they're actually they're a, a, the equivalent of i suppose instead of seeing an ophthalmologist you see your optometrist for a, a, you know there's that extra level that you can get into yes. that, that is not available in this setting even though the technology around how to do it is, is relatively cheap and widespread it's just a shame i think that that's not one of the options that we yeah. could sort of put out there that extra level of, of check that women could it's have the it's there it's just not being accessed appropriately mm. because the gps don't know or aren't familiar and the patients if they're not aware either they're yeah. not accessing it now before we let you go i want, want to talk a little bit about your research because you're, you're actually in the sort of research end of this as well yeah. um what, what exactly are you doing in the area of endometriosis well, my, my focus is therapeutic development. So I'm currently looking at uh, different drugs that might be effective for a patient other than hormonal blockers. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, uh, we've got biopsies from patients. We've created cell lines from those and we're testing about three and a half thousand drugs that are clinically approved for other diseases. Mm. And so we're looking at whether or not we could repurpose a drug, say, that's for arthritis that might be effective for um, controlling these growths and controlling the pain as well. So that's where I'm at at the moment. And so presumably that takes out that 20-year wait period if it's already... Absolutely. You know, it's available clinically for something else, it's it's safe, it, it, you know, it's effective. You don't, you don't have to go through the phase one, <coughs> two, three process. Mm. You can pretty much say, yes, this drug is safe, it's effective, let's put it into the clinical trial, the national clinical trial, and move it forward that way. Mm. Um, and we're doing high throughput screening as well, so the results will come through a lot faster. Great. And what makes you think that a, a drug that could be used for arthritis may be helpful in this situation for endometriosis? Because endometriosis is a complex disease, so not only are we talking about uh, abnormal growth of tissue. We're also talking about inflammation, uh, uh, blood vessel growth. We're also talking about pain receptors. So, and anyone who's experienced pain um, and takes pain medication, after a while, your body gets used to it as well. Mm. And you have to change the dose or you have to change the type of pain relief. And this is what's happening to patients with endometriosis. Over time, there aren't any pain reliefs anymore because they've used them all and their body's tolerant to them. So we mm. need to find something as well as targeting pain, targeting the growth as well. Do we, um, do we have a feeling for how, how much specificity there will be to these drugs? Because one of the things I find is ho hopefully happening in the future that hasn't happened in the past is this idea that, you know, for 30% of the patients this was trialled on, it worked really well, but that's an acceptable number for a pharmaceutical mm. company, so we just shelve it. But if we knew the genetics and we really understood why and I could work out that you were one of the people it worked for, then that 30% becomes really important to you. Yes. Is, I mean, do you think, how much of that element do you think will play into this, given all the drugs you're testing? That element will be key to the success of this as well, because what we have found is that um, the group that I'm part of have done a large genetic screen previously, mm -hmm. and they've identified a number of genes that are associated with increased risk of the disease, but we're still validating those and verifying that this is a true outcome. And if it is, the genes that are affected might not currently have drugs uh, right. targeting them, so we'll have to develop those. Um, but also what we're identifying is that there are different subgroups of patients with this disease, just like if a patient has cancer, there's different mm. variants of cancer. So we're, we're uh, exploring the idea that there may also be subgroups of endometriosis patients and therefore 
different drugs will be effective for different subgroups mm. and that's the progress that we're looking at at the moment yeah no, that's a, now it's seven hundred thousand women have i got that number yes, right it is god that's a huge that is a huge number i mean how does that i just sorry i'm big on comparisons how does that compare to breast cancer for example um, I or, think or some of these major diseases. Can you give us an example of something that people would know? Um, it, when it when you're talking about say the cancer realm, you could be looking at um, the same sort of percentages. You mm. might be looking at a higher percentage, but I think because um, when you're talking about cancer, the patient is more likely to be it could be lethal, mm-hmm. um, or the patient is likely to have a shorter lifespan. Um, whereas endometriosis is simply a chronic disease yeah. that people don't tend to want to talk about because it's female yeah. <laughs> biology. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just been on the shelf and it's been silent for a very long time. And we're just shining the light on it now that the advocates and patients and they've got the minister's attention, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. And he's put in quite a lot of money now. Um, we need all that to continue so that um, we've can launch into the research a lot more stronger as well. Well, Jackie, it's a great privilege to have you on the show and we look forward to hearing a lot more about this and we are more than happy to talk about this whenever you all make progress and so Absolutely. forth. Absolutely, that'd fantastic. be fantastic. Be fantastic. So keep in contact. Jackie Donoghue is a research fellow at the Royal Women's Hospital and the University of Melbourne. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Dr. Stephanie Jacobs. She is from Mosaic Insights and a former student of our own Dr. Ailey, I believe, uh, who set us up. Stephanie, welcome to the studio of RRR. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in. Now, um, of course, you're in the area of climate because uh, Dr. Ailey is into climate and I saw you hugging Dr. Lyndon when you <laughs> came in, so you know, all you climate people stick together. You, you've been working in the area of heat waves. I, I think sometimes people fail to be aware of just what the danger is of some of these can can you recount a couple of the recent ones and just you know how bad that has been in terms of i'm not sure how you measure it livestock um people health i mean what what sort of things are we seeing so my area of expertise is looking at the human impacts from heat waves mm-hmm. but yeah people mostly don't know that heat waves are commonly known as the silent killer in right. australia they've actually caused more deaths in the last hundred years than like bushfires cyclones floods earthquakes combined hmm. um and it's not just in australia it's around the world so some of the recent cases in the northern hemisphere summer that's currently happening we've had over 70 deaths in japan um, in quebec probably more in europe um, another large, particularly bad heat wave was the 2003 European heat wave mm-hmm. in which 70,000 people died. Wow. Yeah. So it's pretty phenomenal numbers. Um, Russia, can, 2010. Can, um, can I ask, like, like yeah. when you say people died, I mean, what did they die of? Heat stress. So, so heat stress. So yeah. is this mainly the sort of frail and elderly or is it young? Like, I mean, who's dying of heat stress? And, and how, it just seems impossible within a country, even like Australia or, or even, even in some of the poorer countries, that you would have a scenario where our citizens would be exposed to that much heat stress. So how is that occurring? Yeah, it's, it's often the elderly who have poor, poor thermoregulations. So mm-hmm. They're not as... Uh, able to sort of release heat and move it around their body 
And often when dementia is involved, sometimes people will think they're turning on the air con, they're actually turning on the heater. Right. So yeah. they're in like a 35 degree day with the heater on and in yeah. blankets on because they just don't know that they're actually really hot. Um, in the case of the European heat wave in 2003, what the, a lot of people died in Paris because younger families went on holiday and then their grandparents were left oh, at home yeah. and they came back and wow. passed away. That's extraordinary. And in terms of, you know, the, the modelling of these heat waves, I mean, you're doing the modelling, right? So you're, you're a mathematician. Uh, no. no. <laughs> Everyone's a mathematician. Everyone's a, a little bit. Yeah. I'm a couple subjects off a maths major, thank you. All right, that's pretty cool. Um, but this this must be, I mean, how do you model these heat waves? I mean, what sort of what sort of parameters go into them? Is it because presumably when the heat comes across a landscape, it depends what happens depends very much on the landscape itself in addition to the weather/climate. Mm, yeah. So, um, the way I do it is I use, you might not know this, but you can actually get meteorological data from the internet. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> if, if you know where to look, you can get uh, information on the weather at any place on Earth, um, at pretty much any high in the atmosphere. You could be like, oh, what's the wind speed? Like, 10 kilometers above the Earth in Antarctica. I'm going to do that later today. You can find yeah. that out. Um, <laughs> you have to know how to process the data, but... It sounds silly, but I basically downloaded some data from the internet and then I used a supercomputer and fed it into this weather model that was able to run the numbers and work out at a two-kilometre resolution scale what is the heat wave doing in Melbourne. Mm. And, and what do you see there? I mean, Melbourne, uh, two kilometres sounds fine because Melbourne's a monstrous-sized city. Mm. I mean, what, what do you see? I suppose the model must show you as as the heat comes across and moves across Melbourne and then presumably just gets stuck here or I mean what what's happening there? Yeah, you can see um, I, I plot it with some red to show hot and you can see yep. this um, red just sort of sweep across Melbourne and then it really kind of um, it actually hangs around overnight because Melbourne suffers from the urban heat island effect, right. which means the city holds heat. So when, when you're running the model, you can see that as the areas around Melbourne start to cool down at night, Melbourne stays like red hot. And then eventually when the heat wave ends, often in Melbourne there's a cold front, so you see this sort of like cool air sweep over the city. Mm-hmm. So what were you looking for here, Steph? Surely you weren't just trying to see kind of how these hot and cold areas dance around. Like what were you, what were you trying to find that was going on in the city? So for my research, I was trying to find the good news story in all the doom and gloom of climate change <laughs> and heat waves. So I was looking at how can we possibly change Melbourne as a city to try and reduce heat wave temperatures. So things I looked at were hypothetical studies, but what would happen if maybe we painted all the roofs white in Melbourne? What would that do to the temperatures during heat waves? Mm. And so the theory behind this is that white reflects light, black absorbs it, and sadly quite a few rooftops in Melbourne have black roofs Mm, mm. um, because they look good. But (laughs) if you have white rooftops... If you have a white rooftop, it will reflect away all the sunlight, and that means that the building itself absorbs less heat. You actually save money on air conditioning. And so what my research did is it didn't just look at a white roof on one building, it looked at white roofs across the whole city. So what would Melbourne look like if it was basically a giant Santorini? And, and, and what, do you, what do you see when you, when you do that? I mean, is it, is it cooler? 
It is cooler. <laughs> yeah, it looks cooler. Uh, it, it looks, looks cooler. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually a North Melbourne fan, so having blue and white everywhere <laughs> works pretty cool. well for me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Paint Melbourne blue and white. I'm, I'm not sure that's right. <laughs> so, so, so and, and, and when you say cooler, I mean, what sort of what sort of temperature range would you be talking about in terms of the the difference you achieve? So it, it varies across the city. Um, in the higher density areas, so maybe like the inner suburbs, when there's more rooftops to reflect away the heat, mm-hmm. you can get cooling of about one degree Celsius. And if and it kind of the cooling becomes less as you move further out, mm. but basically, say you're in Carlton or something, um, if a 49 degree day, would, oh sorry, 39 degree day would then become a 38 degree day if every rooftop in Melbourne was mm. white. Now, one one complication, I suppose, this is mainly in the the inner city, is that there are buildings of different heights. And one of the thing, one of the words I, I remember learning years ago was microclimate. You know, where you get these buildings with highly reflective surfaces that affect the buildings around them. So, so did you look at that at all about what what happens where you have you know a white roof that's relatively low right next to a building that's relatively high? Because presumably that would make the situation worse for some of the buildings. Yeah, I actually didn't look at that because I, I modelled on a two-kilometre resolution right, scale. Right, so you so see it. Was, it yeah. yeah, it was a bit coarse. Hmm. Well, I, I found the idea of white paint interesting. So that that would suggest... Does that have implications for building materials in general, not for just for roofs or...? Yeah, it does. So has has there been any uptake in... I, I do wonder, you know, we always talk about energy-efficient buildings, and mm. sometimes, occasionally, we see the occasional building with the screens and stuff on the outside, often a university building, because they're trying to showcase energy. So what type of implications would this have for building materials and urban planning? Well, I think, hopefully, it would just sort of change the fashion a little bit more, because mm. currently it's quite hard to get a light-coloured a light-coloured roof on your house, and white roofs are pretty rare, um, you have to be wary, though, if they're under a flight path, not great. Because, oh, right? yeah, the sunlight can reflect into pilot's eyes. Because I was going to say just use mirrors. Yeah. But that, that, might be, that might be a problem. And those pilots, are, yeah, but they can't see down, can they? The windows seem to be hitting up. I don't know. <laughs> Jeff. Can we add another colour in here, green? What happens when you change the greenness within a city? Green is another very effective method of reducing the temperature and if you add more plants around the city what it does is instead of having sunlight heat up the surface of the city like heat up buildings and roads the energy gets used by the plants for photosynthesis and to help convert carbon dioxide to water and so it's a much uh i could say better use of the sun's mm. energy sounds like we should do that we should yeah now, the only now, but you, you had a look at that yeah yeah so i, I did measure that and we found that if you re- increase vegetation, it's actually, it reduces the temperature at night a lot more, which is better in terms of improving human health outcomes mm. because it's actually the high overnight temperatures of heat waves that are most dangerous for human health. The only issue with vegetation, particularly in quite a dry climate like Melbourne, is keeping it watered and it's quite expensive. But there are initiatives currently like Greening the West, it's all about the yeah. western suburbs um, increasing plants. It's just getting it in enough quantities and keeping it watered, which is not really that, you know, possible when we don't have enough water to drink. Mm, yeah. So, Steph, it sounds like there could be a, a perfect combination in particular cities where you had some white in some areas and some green in some areas. Do you know if there are any other cities around the world that have implemented some of these things? 
I'm not sure about the combination of the two. Lots of cities tend to do one or the other, but Singapore is a massive one in terms of greening. They, or they have green roofs and walls. They have huge um, developments involving that. And I know in a lot of uh, cities around the world, if a lot of new roofs have to be a green roof, particularly if the climate can support it. So maybe Europe, where there's a lot more rainfall. Mm. It seems because there's even I'm not sure if it was Elon Musk or some rich rich person who was you know offering up these new roof tiles that essentially are solar panels. I mean, presumably as long as you can you can transition the heat into something useful and then use it appropriately. That's I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be by colour. Um, yeah, definitely. Is that, is, that, is that fair to say? Definitely. If you had a rooftop that was, how about, it, okay, here's an ideal rooftop, I, I would imagine. Mm, yeah. I'd say it's white, it's got some plants on it, and solar panels. Right. So and the a cafe mix. as well. In a, in a, in a cafe, <laughs> why not? Yeah. And do you, think, um, do you think there's the chance that, I suppose this is one of those things where you almost need to set up a small you know, scaled down version. The, the, the whole city of Melbourne with the, the ridiculous number of, what, 130 kilometres wide of houses, it's not going to happen. Um, but if, if you could set up some small, you know, city sites, you know, maybe let's say Footscray, um, we just, you know, where there's a lot of urban development and you just do it for a, a square few kilometres. I mean, is that is that the sort of thing that you think is feasible to get government to look into as a, as a, as a priority to show that this sort of thing can deal with it? I mean, as you say, this is when we look at things like bushfires and that the investment there is extraordinary and appropriate um, because of the number of deaths. But more people are dying because of this problem. Yeah. So. Um, to be honest, I haven't thought about it a huge amount. I've mostly dealt in sort of the theoretical range, mm. like what is the potential we could get out of the city. Um, it's definitely worth looking into, though. And I think. There's, defi- there's observational studies, but it's more like one rooftop, not what would happen if a whole suburb yeah. was able to implement these technologies. But they are like widely proven around the world to really reduce temperatures in the city, which could be really valuable during heat waves. Yeah. Well, if anyone from the government's listening, um, there are well, there are a whole range of requirements now for new homes being built um, in order to achieve certain standards, and this is just one more that you could add in. And I actually reckon white roofs would look pretty good, and, and you wouldn't be able to see the bird shit. <laughs> generally, depending on the bird, but generally that wouldn't be a problem. So, Stephanie, thanks so much for coming in and, and chatting to us. It's great to hear about this stuff, and it's re- really interesting just to hear like what a big effect it could have if we did some of this stuff. So um, good luck with your ongoing work. Thank you for having me. Dr Stephanie Jacobs is from Mosaic Insights and a former student of Dr Ailey, one of our regulars. We're going to... I've heard that Steph uh, actually finished her thesis yesterday. yesterday. Is that correct, Dr. Jacobs? <laughs> that is correct. That's yes. great. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> That's fantastic. What was your thesis title? Oh, it's a bit long. Yeah, give it to us. Oh, gosh. It's like using the Wharf mesoscale model to investigate soil moisture and the mechanisms behind urban heat mitigation in Melbourne, Australia. It is not a catchy title. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds good after we just did the interview. Would have been bad if we asked you at the start. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in. We'll chat to you soon. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a short break, folks, and we'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, before we end the show, I thought we'd better just check in quickly for a couple of minutes on you. Jeff, what have you been up to since you've left Melbourne? Uh, well, I'm now um, teaching and doing research yep. down at Deakin University in that beautiful green campus that is Warm Ponds. Mm. In the area of... You're still doing twins? Well, twins I'm still stuff? doing twins uh, and I'm still doing epigenetics. Um, but 
what I'm doing when I went to Deakin, I was previously at a hospital and it was just medical, yeah. medical, medical. Yeah, yeah. And then I met people like Dr. Ewan and people in the ethics and sociology fields and it blew my mind. Right. And it made me think outside the work I'm working on. I'm trying to develop biomarkers that would predict uh, the, on, the onset of a chronic disease before they happen. Okay. And yeah, in the lab I said, oh yeah, let's screen people, you know, fine, no problem. And then I start talking to sociologists and ethicists who say, hold on a minute, what do people actually think and what's mm. the right way to do it? So we've had some fantastic conversations about the how you would go about thinking about improving population health from all sides. And there's so many mm. great experts in Deakin. And also the, one of the most um, interesting parts of this is to venture um, from my comfort zone into an area called planetary health, which we've already discussed, mm. Mm. which how does the, the health of the planet affect the health of the individual and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. And having some really interesting discussions and sharing papers both ways with, with Dr. Ewan. It's really, it's yeah. really interesting. And I think really any, we can all benefit by wider collaborations outside our, our our spheres of research. Indeed. On top of that, I'm learning how to teach. Oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say learning how to surf. But I, yeah, I'm learning how to surf as well, um, but learning how to teach. And it is, I think, everybody who's doing just research should have some time learning how to teach. Yeah, because it has, it has it, a big impact both ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jeff, it's great to see you, and hopefully next time you're up in Melbourne, you'll come in and join right. us again. Uh, good luck with the new job, and I hope... Uh, Hope it keeps being Thanks as great so. as it sounds. And yeah. I'll, I'll tear myself away from the surf. <laughs> sounds come great. Up, come up again sometime. Thanks so much, Dr. Linden. Thank you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Dr. Shane. Dr. Ray, see you again soon. Good to see you. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. She's back from some European holiday. We missed her. <laughs> You've been listening to Einstein to Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rr. Dot org dot au.